Sometimes it's tempting to think that if we were alive at the same time as Jesus walked the earth in his human body, that things would somehow be easier, like it would be easier to have faith or easier to really know the truth about Jesus because we would see him and walk with him and hear him and get his body language and all of that. I think it would be easier until you actually read about the real first disciples of Jesus and the early church. Like, you and I have the luxury of like 2,000 years of history, 2,000 years roughly of theologizing, of life in the spirit, of having the entire Bible. But life for the first apostles, for those first disciples, I think in reality it must have been very disorienting. Like within the first few years that Jesus of Nazareth begins his ministry as an adult, he, he chooses these disciples, fishermen and tax collectors, and, and he changes their, their lives. He turns them upside down. They leave their jobs. They, they start to be on this road show with Jesus. They see him do these amazing things that teach these amazing things like no one has ever taught before. For three, four years, roughly, they're doing this. Their, their lives are completely changed. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is crucified. And I, I imagine that they had just deep sorrow over this. And then he's risen from the grave three days later. And I would imagine they have great joy and confusion. And they're poking this new body he's got and like trying to figure out who resurrection Jesus is. And then just 40 days after his resurrection... He ascends into heaven. He leaves them again. So now what are they sad now? Or are they confused? Are they frustrated? And then 10 days after that, Pentecost comes. And they receive the Holy Spirit and empowerment for mission and this energy and this impulse to go tell the world about Jesus. The apostles didn't have the New Testament like, they do, like we do because they were the ones who wrote it. They're the ones figuring out how to talk about the creator of the universe becoming flesh like a human and dwelling among us. They're the ones who had to figure out how after years of being taught that there's only one God named Yahweh and we only worship one God, they're the ones who had to figure out how to talk about the reality that somehow it was right and good to also worship Jesus and the Holy Spirit, that the three are one and one are three, and people are still trying to figure that out. And these first apostles of Jesus, I think they're worth listening to, not only because they saw Jesus and not only because they were witnesses to the things that he did. I, I, that's important. But I think they're worth listening to because they also suffered. And they were with a God who also suffered. And therefore, the apostles and Jesus himself can relate to you and me in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our humanity. So far in our Advent series, we've seen three qualities that the apostles continually encourage in the church and therefore in us. These, these three qualities that we've seen encourage us to stay faithful to Jesus, even in the midst of, of, of difficulties and in, in, in the reality of life. And those three qualities that we've looked at are thanksgiving, that, that, that posture of being thankful and recognizing God as the giver of all good things. That was the first one. The second one is patience. And, and particularly recognizing the patience that God has toward us. 
that he's not slow, that he's not unjust, that he's not an uncaring God. He's not lazy in his return to make all things new. He's patient because he wants more of us to come to know him in his goodness and loving kindness. And then last week we looked at the quality of humility and recognizing uh, who we really are. Like when we think we're kind of full of ourselves, like God reminds us like, you, you were nothing when I called you. I made you everything dignified and um, an image bearer of the living God. On this fourth Sunday of Advent, we're going to consider the importance of joy. Now, before you internally or externally roll your eyes at me, let me explain what I'm talking about. This isn't some pie-in-the-sky message where I tell you from well-researched passages, hand-picked and chosen to convince you that all you need to do this Christmas is put on a happy face. I know all too well, like you do, that this time of year can bring out the worst in us. Far too often we allow ourselves to get overextended in our time commitments, overextended in our uh, finances, or overcommitted relationally. We know all too well that pain of loss of loved ones, both those who have actually died and those who are dead to us, right? Like, estrangement in relationships just seems to be highlighted this time of year when everyone else is talking about family get-togethers. And, and I think that that pain is far too great for some preacher to be saying, just cheer up. Hey, joy is just an attitude. It's just a change of mind. You can do it. I mean, yeah, we should choose joy. Like, that's also in the Bible. And we should choose joy as a better quality than just mere happiness by circumstances. But sometimes, doesn't it just ring a little hollow, especially when you are in the pits and feeling overwhelmed? And let's face it, we live in a broken world. Like, we cannot help, but even our best thinking is thinking with, like, a fallen mind. We need something more substantial. We need something that's actually assurance for us and not just good advice. The early apostles were no strangers to needing some more assurance. Things did not get easier after Jesus ascended and gave his Holy Spirit. The Roman emperor Nero fed Christians to wild animals in the Colosseums in 67 A.D., Also in the 60s, not the 1960s flower power, but in the 60s AD, that's when we see Peter and Paul, two great pillars of Christian faith being crucified for their faith. And things got worse in 92 AD when the emperor Domitian rose to power. Unlike Augustus Caesar, uh, who was the emperor when Jesus was born, remember Augustus Caesar was revolutionary in the Caesars in that he called himself the son of God. But Domitian went a step further, saying that he himself was worthy of worship. And he made a command that people in the Roman Empire had to worship him. And so once a year, every person in the empire was to make their way to one of the many temples throughout the land. And they were to pay homage to Domitian, who styled himself as Domine et Deus, which means Lord and God. People would pinch some incense and put it upon the altar, saying the word Caesar Curios, meaning Caesar is Lord. Now, that wasn't such a big deal for Romans and Greeks who were polytheistic anyway. They were like, well, what's one more God? Sure, I'll just throw some incense to this one because I've got like 1,700 other ones. 
But to Jews and Christians, it was a big deal. Like Domitian killed 40,000 roughly of them, big deal, in the 90s. The Apostle John was about 80 years old, give or take a few years, at the time Domitian was making these commands. And when John refused to worship Domitian, to offer incense to him, the authorities could have killed John, but they were savvy. They knew that if they killed this pillar of the Christian faith, that he would become a martyr and that he would actually strengthen the resolve of Christians. So they did what uh, the, the other move that empires can do is they try and silence John. And so they put him on an island 10 miles off the coast of modern-day Turkey. The island's called Patmos, and it was a rock quarry for the Roman Empire. And political prisoners would, there, would, would be put there to basically bleach out on a rocky island and die. Now, the fact that I'm telling you this, the fact that we are speaking of John and his resistance, the fact that I am about to preach out of the revelation of John a letter that he wrote from this rocky island shows us that the empire was quite wrong. Kill, cast away, try and silence the gospel. It will not work. And on this rocky island of Patmos, Jesus gave John a, vi a vision while he's in prison, a vision of encouragement, a vision that is meant to bring us great joy. Joy because despite what the world looks like, despite what the world feels like, Jesus wins in the end. And in this vision we see that Jesus' followers also win in the end. And that's designed to bring John and the early church and you and I joy. Would you stand as we, as we read um, the Revelation of John chapter 7? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our Lord God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving 
and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Those, these who are clothed in white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, They are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them, and they will hunger and thirst no more. Nor will any sun beat down on them, nor any heat, for the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of living water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Lord, this is weird stuff, (laughs) but it is a traditional text, I believe, that the church has handed down for Advent for some good reason. We pray for extra help to hear and see you clearly what it is you're saying to us in this revelation of John. Have mercy on us. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so tis the season. It's kind of the holiday season. How many of you have gone or had to go, you don't have to say which one, to the Nutcracker Ballet? Anyone ever seen that in any way, shape, or form? Yes, I've been several times. Um, <clears throat> It's hard to understand. Uh, There's anthropomorphic giant vermin uh, that dance around in tights. uh, It it is just a weird show. And the only way I can really make sense of it is because we have the children's books at home that actually have writing in them that tell the story of what's going on. But when I, like, first few times I went to the Nutcracker and didn't actually know the book story, I was like, what is going on? Like, they don't say anything. It's not even a musical. They don't even sing what's going on. They just dance around. And frankly, why did they choose ballet to communicate a kind of freaky dreamscape? Sorry, that's how I felt. (laughs) Now, a few years ago, I realized that my trouble... I'm owning it, with the nutcracker was mostly my own error. I shouldn't have gone to a ballet expecting it to communicate to me like a musical or like a film or like a book. And once you get over the fact that the thing is not what you expected, then you're free to see and to experience what the nutcracker actually is. And it's actually uniquely memorable. Because without prose and without music with lyrics, you have to look for your cues and your clues in other places. You have to look at setting and costume and colors. And I have to ask people what the colors are because I'm colorblind, but it helps to ask what the colors are. You have to look at lighting and shading and body movements, how important, and dance, duh. And you have to pay attention with the orchestra, the vibe. The orchestra sits in a pit, and unless you're really looking for them, it's just the sound coming out that is part of the character in the show. And you have to look at all these things through a lens of metaphor and symbolism. Now, I've just read to you the seventh chapter of Revelation. If we try approaching the seventh chapter of Revelation like we have been approaching 1 Samuel, like when we went through it in the fall, or like reading Paul's letter to the Romans, or like the Gospel of John, it would be like trying to understand the nutcracker by expecting words 
and a narrator. So first we have to understand just a little bit of what we're dealing with here in Revelation 7. Now, when I say the word apocalypse, what comes to your mind instantly? Like, what are some things that come to your mind? Apocalypse. Destruction. Zombies. Yes, that totally came to my mind too. End of the world. Yeah, I mean, that's like, what? Bruce Willis. Okay, nice. Yes, okay. Yes, and that's where we'll cut it off. No, it's kidding. It's just kidding. No, but like seriously, in our culture, like the colloquial way that we talk about apocalyptic or apocalypse or post-apocalyptic, it's usually has something to do with destruction of the world or definitely zombies, right? Well, we get our word apocalypse from the Greek apocalypsis, which means to reveal or to peel back or to lay bare or to lay open. And the Greek title for the book of Revelation is, you guessed it, apocalypsis, to reveal or to uncover or to peel back or to lay bare so that you can actually see what's going on. Apocalyptic writings are found in other scriptures, such as Ezekiel and parts of Daniel. They're also found all over other ancient Greek writings, so we actually know quite a bit about this genre of writing. And some common features of apocalyptic writings is that they often use numbers very symbolically. So numbers don't necessarily do the job of counting items, but communicating qualities. In apocalyptic writings, God's activities in real life are often Uh, characterized as acts of nature. So when God says something or does something in the real world, in apocalyptic writing, it's often talked about as earthquakes and sea swelling and winds blowing violently and uh, the celestial bodies, maybe the sun is darkened or the moon is darkened or it turns colors like red or the stars are falling out of the sky. In apocalyptic writing, when God acts in real time, it's written about in nature writing. And in apocalyptic writings, people are often described as animals. So, low-hanging fruit example, Jesus is described as a lamb as if slain. And and then in another phrase, he's mentioned as a lion. Now, Jesus is not either of those things in real life, right? But the purpose of apocalyptic writing is not to confuse. It's to reveal. And the main thing that biblical apocalyptic writings reveal are not necessarily things about the distant future, but the reality of things going on right now in the unseen world. Think of the Wizard of Oz, and it's the stuff behind the curtain, the things really going on in real time. Now, as we work through this text together, consider that it was written to seven churches in Asia Minor, in the first century AD. These seven churches were under persecution from the Roman Empire, and the believers were not just up against a tyrannical emperor in Domitian, but they were trying to follow Jesus in a culture that was consistently tempting them to immorality and unethical behavior and greed and gluttony and sexual sin and idolatry and apostasy and all other kinds of apostasies and... Basically, it's a lot like today. (laughs) And being the resistance, little Star Wars, uh, it's hard work. Being the resistance, resisting the, um, the mainstream or culture because we live in it, that's hard work. People were feeling beaten down. Like they'd been faithful 
but they weren't feeling particularly blessed. Their leaders are going off to prison. John's on an island. Peter and Paul had been crucified. Uh, other leaders you know, martyred and killed or silenced. The empire seemed to be winning. Justice, real justice, seemed like a pipe dream or a joke. And they must have wondered, they must have wondered like, like you and I wonder sometimes if we're actually honest with ourselves. Is all this really worth it? Wouldn't it just be easier to cave in and go with the flow? Because this is hard work. And it's in this particularly relevant setting that we have the book of Revelation to encourage us by giving a peek behind the cosmic curtain. And what we find in this passage, I believe, is cause for great joy. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. The chapter begins with a vision. And Jesus shows John that four angels are holding back these four winds from the four corners of the earth. These four winds are not allowed, apparently, to do any harm to the earth or to its people until the bond servants of Jesus have their foreheads sealed. Okay? So it gets weird from the very beginning, right? Remember that in apocalyptic writing, uh, or remember that this is apocalyptic writing, and that in previous chapters in Revelation, we learn that Jesus is going to bring judgment on those who are in rebellion against him and who are oppressing other people, whose policies of injustice are holding vast groups of people down while they make themselves rich and wealthy and powerful. It's the same as it ever was. As I mentioned earlier, four winds is a symbolic way of talking about judgment, about God bringing justice, bringing judgment to the earth. And it's, it's an apocalyptic way of saying that's what God is going to do. Forces that carry out God's will. We're not to think that judgment of God is going to be like a really bad windstorm, although, you know, it could be, but that's not what the passage means. It just, just as a windstorm blows uncontrollably and destructively, so will the judgment be. That's the meaning of the passage. The four corners of the earth are not like, oh, the ancient people thought the, the earth was like a square map or something. Uh, actually, they thought it was a flat disk, but um, the four corners of the earth is just a classic literary way of saying everywhere. In other words, there's nowhere safe from what's coming when these angels let the wind start blowing. Except that is for those who are sealed on their foreheads. What does that mean? Is God going to put a tattoo on your forehead or give everybody a funky birthmark on their forehead? Be kind of cool if it was the rebel. Anyway, um, 
Now, I, I have the privilege of sitting uh, with our middle school Bible study just this last Wednesday. And big shout out to Christy Wilson and Emily Frazier, who faithfully host that every Wednesday morning before school. Thanks, you guys. Um, and, and the kids were asking some great questions about uh, this time it was the Gospel of Luke. And um, I, I, one of the things I always like to say, I've said it to you a bunch of times in, in preaching, and I said to them, is when we come to a hard passage in Scripture, one of the things we could ask and should ask is, have I ever seen this before? Have I ever heard this before? Have I ever seen talk of someone's forehead being sealed or marked in the Bible before that might shed a little bit of light onto what on earth is going on in Revelation 7. Well, why? Yes, we have. In Ezekiel 9, God is about to bring judgment on Israel for their sinfulness. And he's, in that passage, he's going to allow a foreign power, a foreign nation to come in and to wipe out Israel and to bring judgment in the form of a military campaign. Except that he calls this angel to be dressed in these robes and to have this inkwell. And this angel's supposed to go and mark all the Israelites on their forehead who have groaned over the fallen state of Israel, who have remained faithful to God and mourned over their sinfulness and idolatry. Those are the ones who are, have a heart for God who are supposed to be marked and set aside. Again, we're not talking about literal scribbles on their heads. It's a heart disposition that marks them out. And this angel in Ezekiel 9 is to mark them out for salvation so that when destruction comes, they will be left alone. Again, I've said it before a hundred times when we've gone through these passages, you want to be left behind. Okay? Left behind was not only just bad literary writing, it's, just, it's also a bad interpreter of scripture. You want to be left behind okay? um, when, when it comes down to this. <laughs> okay, anyway, uh, <clears throat> you talked to me at dinner. Um, the point is, the mark is not a tattoo or a physical symbol. It's a metaphorical statement about something quite solid. The faithful, the followers of Jesus are to be sealed, which is another way of saying they're to be rescued or saved from this destruction. And in the ancient world, a king or a great lord had a special signet ring. And when that king or great lord or princess or empress would send a formal scroll or a document. They would put wet wax on that seal, and then they would put their signet ring in it. And then when you got the document, if that seal wasn't broken, you would know that no one has tampered with it, and you could trust that it was the, you know, the word of the king. It basically was their mark of authentication. This comes from me. This belongs to me. I authenticate it. And so by God putting a seal on your, on your head, metaphorically, what he's saying is, I've marked you as my own that you're authentically mine. In the same way, the seal of salvation is belonging to God through allegiance to Jesus. Okay, so that's what, that's what we're talking about here in these sealed foreheads. The question is, who gets to receive this seal? And this is where we get into more apocalyptic goodness. All throughout the book of Revelation, we see John receiving information from Jesus. He's on his island prison, and Jesus is talking to him about the realities of the unseen world, and he gives him information in two ways. Consistently, if you read through Revelation, you'll see these two things. John sees, and John hears. There's things that Jesus tells John, and then there's things that Jesus shows John. 
In verse 4 through 8, we read that John heard. John heard. He did not see. He heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe from the sons of Israel. Okay, so on the surface, this seems to communicate a very restrictive number of people who will be saved. And I know what you're thinking, like, I thought this was supposed to be about joy. I hope I'm one of those 144,000. All right, let's just start with the numbers, okay? 144,000 people does not seem like very many people. When you consider all the followers of Jesus that there are today, right, like billions, and and then you start to include all of the followers of Jesus over the centuries since there were followers of Jesus. Like, that's a lot of people. 144,000 doesn't even scratch the surface. It's not even like a percentile. It's just so tiny. And then you start to think, gosh, 144,000, that's a really neat number. Like, seriously, like not 143,999? Not 144,001? Like, so neat and tidy. Now remember that the numbers in apocalyptic writing aren't communicating exact sums, but qualities. And it just so happens that 144,000 is 12, traditional number of Israelite tribes, number of Jesus' disciples, right? So that's a symbolic number. 12 squared and multiplied by 1,000, which is 10 to the third power. 12, symbolic number. 10 the number for completeness, three, 10 to the third power, the number of holiness. 144,000 in this context communicates a massive, complete number. A massive, holy, perfect number. And those list of tribes, you know, there are lots of lists of tribes in the Bible. It was how people reckoned with who they were, where they came from, what the pecking order was. It was a standard way of talking about God's people. But in this list, we see some changes that for a first century reader would have tipped them off to something entirely new going on. First of all, Reuben is the oldest son of the tribe. So he was the oldest of the 12. In the other list, Reuben is listed first. But in this list, we see Judah is first. And clearly it's because Jesus himself comes from the line of Judah. And in this list, the tribe of Dan, which happens to be the tribe in tradition most associated with idolatry and rebellion and fallen Israel, Dan is completely out of the list. He doesn't even make the list. While Manasseh, who's like this, this half-tribe, is, takes Dan's place in the list. It's really interesting. Now remember, the whole point of Israel was to be blessed to be faithful to God so that, there's always the so that, so that the world would come to know God through Israel. Israel's blessing was always with a missionary focus so that the nations would come to know God. Now hold that thought, okay? So this perfect number of 144,000 is listed along with a mixed number of tribes, and that's what John hears. Now, let's see what he sees. We'll have to hear what he sees. I wish we could see it. Let's hear what John sees to help us fill in the gaps. 
Verse 9. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. We know the 144,000 is more than 144,000 because John sees a great multitude which nobody could count. And where are they from? Like who makes up this uncountable multitude of sealed, therefore saved ones? Is it just ethnic Israel? Is it just people from the 12 tribes, even the tribes minus Dan plus Manasseh? Well, we read about it. There's men and women and boys and girls from every nation, every nation, every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages and cultures standing before the throne, before the Lamb, and they're in white robes and they're waving palm branches. That's victory. where you think of the triumphal entry when people are waving palm branches when Jesus comes in and singing Hosanna. That's what you do when a king comes to town who's just won a great victory. So they're standing in the throne room, people from all over the world who all look different. They're from all of these cultures and they're coming in and they're waving the palm branches of victory, not for themselves, but to the lamb, to Jesus. What a massive number, an uncountable number. You know what this makes me think of? Where have we seen this before, right? This is a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 that he would bless Abraham, who would become Israel. And through that blessing, he would bless the world such that his descendants, his children of faith, would outnumber the sands on the seashore. That's a lot. And the stars in the sky, uncountable Amounts of people will be sealed, preserved, saved. Just to clarify, there's this back and forth with the angel and with John, like, well, who are these people? I mean, it, by the way, if you, I, on the surface, it's just really weird that the guy knows the answer to the question. And they ask John, like, you know, the angel's like, who are these people? And John's like, well, you know, Lord. And he tells John, it's like, why didn't you just tell me in the first place? That's just classic, ancient, like, rabbi disciple rhetoric it's just like a way to make a point anyway um just to clear that up because it's weird this is there's this back and forth um and we find out that these uncountable multitudes of people in white robes worshiping jesus are survivors of the great tribulation in greek tribulation is thalipsis it's just really fun to say everyone say thalipsis Thalipsis, yes, it's, that's the word for tribulation. And thalipsis means like great pressure. 
like when two seemingly unmovable objects clash together when they confront each other. And I I like Daryl Johnson's illustration of two tectonic plates coming together. We've got God's kingdom on the one hand pushing up against the way of the fallen world and rebellion against God's kingdom on the other. And these two plates are crashing together and rubbing and creating tension and friction. It is the great tribulation in Greek, megathalipsis. It's even better than regular thalipsis. And that's what we have in our passage is megathalipsis, the great pressure of colliding kingdoms. And when does all this take place? Well, John is saying that this is what's happening. The curtains peeled back. Jesus is showing us that the megathalipsis is going on right now. That it started with the birth of Christmas, God crashing into the world, becoming flesh, entering creation in the flesh. The tribulation is played out when Jesus is casting out demons and they're screaming and running from him because these plates are coming, this thalipsis is happening. When Jesus goes to the cross and dies on behalf of us and, and, and defeats Death itself, this is a, a megathalipsis. And when Jesus raises from the grave, megathalipsis. And when Jesus ascends and receives glory, fulfills uh, Daniel 7 and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, uh, reigns over all things. That's megathalipsis, the world, and the enemy does not like that. And then on Pentecost, pouring out the Spirit onto the church and empowering us to, uh, to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth, this is megathalipsis. This is us coming into rub with, with the world. And it continues. We're in the megathalipsis. It's the tension of cultural values that are at odds with God's kingdom values. It's political policies that are at odds with God's kingdom policies. It's economic drivers and engines and greed that are at odds with God's economy of generosity and blessing. It's bodies that are not yet fit for the kingdom, flesh and minds that fail us. Can I get an amen? Amen. Yes. Emotions and insecurities that are out of alignment with God's kingdom, clashing together with the kingdom of God. And Jesus wants us to see, he wants us to be encouraged that he sealed us and marked us with his spirit if we're with him, if we're his people. He wants us to see that he is patient in holding back the winds of judgment so that more people can come to know him. He is the lamb on the throne whose blood washes us clean from our sin. We are sealed and saved, not because of our own purity, but because of the purity of the Lamb who was slain for us. That's what this passage is saying to us. And this Lamb, in verse 17, also is the good shepherd. He not only rescues us, but he leads us into life eternal. Life without suffering, life without separation from God. And he wants us to know, why is he showing this to John? And why is John sharing it with the church? And why has the church shared it with us? Because Jesus wants us to know that it is worth it. That it's worth it. The the, the tension that we're in, it's worth it. That faithfulness to Jesus, despite what it costs now, despite how we will suffer, 
despite how when we follow Jesus, we will feel out of place in the world. Right? We will feel marginalized sometimes because of the things that we believe are different. He wants us to know that it's worth the cost, even if we die. It's worth it because we have seen how the story plays out, and Jesus wins. In Revelation 7, we see the curtain pulled back, and we get a glimpse at reality and assurance that, that in Christ, we're, we make up that group of the uncounted ones from all the nations coming together. So in the pressure cooker of of suffering, Jesus allows John a glimpse of reality behind the curtain. Not just an empty encouragement, hey John, have joy, I'm with you buddy. But he gives him concrete reasons to be joyful, unfettered joy, joy in the Lord. Let the joy of the Lord be our strength as we get to see what's really going on. Lord, Thank you for this revelation, for peeling back the curtain for John, your servant, for commanding him to pass this down to encourage the churches in Asia and the church for all time. Lord, help us not only to hear and and see behind the curtain, but to believe and to trust and to internalize that it is worth it, that for the joy set before you, you endured the cross, Lord, for the joy set before us, help us to endure and to be faithful and to trust that even when we have failed and when we have not been faithful, that you forgive and that we are sealed in you. Lord, strengthen us and encourage us in Jesus' name. Amen.